Cardinal Mueller just released a rather strongly worded and vicious counter-argument to Francis's new motu proprio. While I don't agree with everything here he says about Vatican II, his words are a welcome response and support in the mess Francis created. Remember, Cardinal Mueller is definitely a man of the council. He is definitely a hermeneutic of continuity kind of bishop. And the only hermeneutic of continuity bishop, if you can even call him that, that I really, really like is the auxiliary bishop from Kazakhstan, whose name I can't even say on my channel for reasons that are still mysterious to me. Here he points out, though, that would be Cardinal Mueller, that the German bishops are being permitted to embrace all manner of heresy, while those of us who want a rather coherent Catholicism and liturgy are the ones being targeted by the wrath of Francis. I'll have a link in today's show notes at returntotradition.org for the full text so you can read it for yourself. But this letter is only the first of what I am sure are many responses coming from the better bishops in the hierarchy who are prone to writing public letters. The Pope's intention with his modu proprio, Traditionis Custodes, is to secure or restore the unity of the Church. The proposed means for this is the total unification of the Roman Rite in the form of the Missal of Paul VI, including its subsequent variations. Therefore, the celebration of Mass in the extraordinary form of the Roman Rite is introduced by Pope Benedict XVI with Samorum Pontificum on the basis of the Missal that existed from Pius V in 1570 to John XXIII in 1962 has been drastically restricted. The clear intent is to condemn the extraordinary form to extinction in the long run. In his Letter to the Bishops of the Whole World, which accompanies the motu proprio, Pope Francis tries to explain the motives that have caused him, as the bearer of the supreme authority of the Church, to limit the liturgy in the extraordinary form. Beyond the presentation of his subjective reactions, however, a stringent and logically comprehensible theological argumentation would also have been appropriate. For papal authority does not consist in superficially demanding from the faithful mere obedience, i.e. a formal submission of the will, but, much more essentially, in, in, in enabling the faithful also to be convinced with consent of the mind. As St. Paul says, courteous towards his often quite unruly Corinthians, in the church I would rather speak five words with my mind, so as to instruct others also, than ten thousand word in tongues. This dichotomy between good intention and poor execution always arises where the ob objections of competent employees are perceived as an obstruction of their superiors' intentions, and which are, therefore, not even offered. As welcome as the references to Vatican II may be, care must be taken to ensure that the Council's statements are used precisely and in context. The quotation from St. Augustine about membership in the Church, according to the body and according to the heart, see Lumen Gentium, paragraph 14, refers to the full Church membership of the Catholic faith. It consists in the visible incorporation into the body of Christ, creedal, sacramental, ecclesiastical, hierarchical communion, as well as in the union of the heart, i.e. in the Holy Spirit. What this means, however, is not obedience to the Pope and the bishops in the discipline of the sacraments, but sanctifying grace, which fully involves us in the invisible church as communion with the triune God. For the unity in the confession of the revealed faith and the celebration of the mysteries of grace in the seven sacraments by no means require sterile uniformity in the external liturgical form, as if the church were like one of the international hotel chains with their homogenous design. 
The unity of believers with one another is rooted in unity in God through faith, hope, and love, and has nothing to do with uniformity in appearance. The lockstep of a military formation, or the groupthink of the technological age. Even after the Council of Trent, there was always a certain diversity, musical, celebratory, regional, in the liturgical organization of masses. The intention of Pope Pius V was not to suppress the variety of rites, but rather to curb their misuses that had led to a devastating lack of understanding among the Protestant reformers regarding the substance of the sacrifice of the Mass, its sacrificial character and real presence. In the Missal of Paul VI, ritualistic, rubricist homogenization is broken up, precisely in order to overcome a mechanical execution in favor of an inner and outer active participation of all believers in their respective languages and cultures. The unity of the Latin rite, however, should be preserved through the same basic liturgical structure and the precise orientation of the translations to the Latin original. The Roman Church must not pass on its responsibility for unity and cultus to the bishops' conferences, Rome must oversee translation of the normative text of the Missal of Paul VI, and even of the biblical texts that might obscure the contents of the faith. Presumptions that one may improve the verba domini, for, if, for example, the for many at the consecration, and the lead us not into temptation in the Our Father, contradict the truth of the faith and the unity of the Church, much more than celebrating Mass according to the Missal of John XXIII. The key to a Catholic understanding of the liturgy lies in the insight that the substance of the sacraments is given to the Church as a visible sign and means of the invisible grace by virtue of divine law, but that it is up to the apostolic see and in accordance with the law to the bishops to order the external form of the liturgy, insofar as it has not already existed in apostolic times. See Sacrosanctum Concilium, paragraph 22, subsection 1. The provisions of traditionis custodes are of a disciplinary, not dogmatic nature and can be modified again by any future pope. Naturally, the pope, in his concern for the unity of the church in the revealed faith, is to be fully supported when the celebration of Holy Mass according to the Missal of 1962 is an expression of resistance to the authority of Vatican II, which is to say when the doctrine of the faith and the church's ethics are relativized or even denied in the liturgical and pastoral order. In Traditionis Custodes, the Pope rightly insists on the unconditional recognition of Vatican II. Nobody can call himself a Catholic who either wants to go back behind Vatican II or any other council recognized by the Pope as the time of the true Church, or wants to leave the Church behind as an intermediary steps towards a new Church. One may measure Pope Francis's will to return to unity the deplored so-called traditionalists, i.e. those opposed to the Missal of Paul VI, against the degree of his determination to put an end to the innumerable innovative misuses of the liturgy, renewed in accordance with Vatican II, that are tantamount to blasphemy. The twisting of the Catholic liturgy, which is in its essence nothing other than the worship of the one and triune God, through the mythologization of nature, the idolatry of the environment, as well as the Pacamama spectacle, were rather counterproductive for the restoration and renewal of a dignified and orthodox liturgy, reflective of the fullness of the Catholic faith. Nobody can turn a blind eye to the fact that even those priests and laypeople who celebrate Mass according to the order of the Missal of St. Paul VI are now being widely decried as traditionalist. The teachings of Vatican II on the uniqueness of redemption in Christ 
the full realization of the Church of Christ in the Catholic Church. The inner essence of the Catholic liturgy is adoration of God and mediation of grace, revelation and its presence in scripture and apostolic tradition, the infallibility of the magisterium, the primacy of the Pope, the sacramentality of the Church, the dignity of the priesthood, the holiness and indissolubility of the nuptial sacrament, all these are being heretically denied in open contradiction to Vatican II by a majority of German bishops and lay functionaries, even if disguised under pastoral phrases. And despite all the apparent enthusiasm they express for Pope Francis, they are flatly denying the authority conferred on him by Christ as the successor of Peter, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith's document about the impossibility of embracing James Martin contracts through a blessing is ridiculed by German, and not only German bishops, priests, and theologians, as merely the opinion of underqualified curial officials. Here we have a threat to the unity of the Church in revealed faith, reminiscent of the size of the Protestant secession from Rome in the 16th century. Given the disproportion between the relatively modest response to the massive attacks on the unity of the Church in the German synodal way, as well as in other pseudo-reforms, in the harms disciplining of the old ritual minority, the image of the misguided fire brigade comes to mind, which, instead of saving the blazing house, instead first saves the small barn next to it. Without the slightest empathy, one ignores the religious feelings of the often young participants in the masses according to the Missal of John the Twenty-Third. Instead of appreciating the smell of the sheep, the shepherd here hits them hard with his crook. It also seems simply unjust to abolish celebrations of the quote-unquote old rite just because it attracts some problematic people. Abusus non tolit usum. What deserves a special attention in Traditionis Custodis is the use of the axiom Lex Orandi, Lex Credendi. Rule of prayer is the rule of faith. This phrase appears first in the Antipelagian Indulculus, which spoke about the sacraments of priestly prayers, handed down by the apostles to be celebrated uniformly all over the world and in the entire Catholic Church, so that the rule of prayer is the rule of faith. This refers to the substance of the sacraments in signs and words, but not the liturgical rite of which there were several with different variants in the patristic era. One cannot simply declare the latest missal to be the only valid norm of the Catholic faith without distinguishing between the part that is unchangeably changeable by virtue of divine institution and the parts that are subject to change. See Sacrosanctum Concilium, paragraph 21. The changing liturgical rites do not represent a different faith, rather testify to the one and same apostolic faith of the Church in its different expressions. The Pope's letter confirms that he allows the celebration according to the older form under certain conditions. He rightly points to the centrality of the Roman canon in the more recent Missal as the heart of the Roman rite. This guarantees the crucial continuity of the Roman liturgy in its essence, organic development, and inner unity. To be sure, one expects the, loves, the lovers of the ancient liturgy to recognize the renewed liturgy, just as the followers of the Paul VI Missal also have to confess that the Mass according to the Missal of John XXIII is a true and valid Catholic liturgy. That is, it contains the substance of the Eucharist instituted by Christ, and therefore there is and can only be the one Mass of all times. A little more knowledge of Catholic dogmatics and the history of the liturgy could counteract the unfortunate formation of opposing parties and also save the bishops from the temptation to act in a strong-armed, loveless, and narrow-minded manner against the supporters of the quote-unquote old mass. 
the bishops are appointed as shepherds by the Holy Spirit. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. See Acts chapter 20, verse 28. They are not merely representatives of a central office, with opportunities for advancement. The good shepherd can be recognized by the fact that he worries more about the salvation of souls than recommending himself to a higher authority by subservient, quote-unquote, good behavior. See 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1-4. to If the law of non-contradiction still applies, one cannot logically castigate careerism in the church and at the same time promote careerists. Let us hope that the congregations for religious and for divine worship with their new authority do not become inebriated by power and think they have to wage a campaign of destruction against the communities of the old right, in the foolish belief that by doing so they are rendering a service to the church and promoting Vatican II. If traditionis custodis is to serve the unity of the church, that can only mean a unity in faith, which enables us to come to the perfect knowledge of the Son of God, which is to say, unity in truth and love. See Ephesians chapter 4, verses 12 to 15. Signed, Cardinal Gerhard Mueller, the 19th of July, 2021. Those were the words of Cardinal Gerhard Mueller, who at one time had a rather high post in the Roman Curia. And his words are, I think, encouraging for someone who had been in the Roman Curia for as long as he had, both under Benedict XVI and under Francis. I hope that you found it helpful, and I hope you share this with people who need to know that there are high-ranking bishops and cardinals who actually do sort of support the you know orthodox position on all of this. As always, thank you for, for listening, and please pray for the Church. I'm Anthony Stein. Ave Maria.